Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. I have a special message for you today about Simeon. As we get started, I'd like you to pray with me right now. Father, this is a good morning. And I know so many kids and families are gathered around trees and exchanging presents and having good food. And whenever people are joining us today, I just pray that you will just be in the midst of this celebration. And today's message would be a reminder of what it is we are celebrating today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. My question I want to start off with is simply this. What are you waiting on right now? I mean, some of you are asking questions like, how long until this relationship is better and becomes all it should be? Uh, how long until that friend or family member is finally freed from their addiction? How long until my family gets along like a normal family? How long until this financial crunch is over? How long until my loneliness is quenched by a significant relationship? How long until my body is better or my heartache is healed? How long until this habit is broken? How long until I'm different? How long until we get to open all those presents underneath the tree? Because, come on, man, we're only human. Much of our heartache and angst at Christmas is tied up in waiting for things as they should be, anticipating something different, something better, waiting for the fulfillment of our hope. As we get started today, I'd like you to consider something that's called the marshmallow test. So way back in the 60s, early 70s, there was a Stanford professor of psychology that began a study about delayed gratification that affectionately became known as the marshmallow test. What he did was take four-year-olds, put them in a room, one at a time, to meet with a psychologist, and he would sit down at the table with them. Then he'd pull out a bag of marshmallows, take one out, and place it on the table right in front of the four-year-old. Now, he'd tell them... Now, I've got to go run an errand, so I'm going to leave this marshmallow right here. You can have this marshmallow anytime you want, but if you don't eat it, when I get back, I'll give you two. But if you eat this one, it's going to be the only one you're going to eat. Do you understand? Then the four-year-old would nod their head and have to repeat back the instructions just to be sure that everything registered in their little four-year-old brain. Then the researcher would leave the room with the child alone, sitting on the chair, staring at the marshmallow in front of them on the table. And they would leave for 15 minutes. It was like a form of sick medieval torture for a four-year-old. The marshmallow test strained the very soul of these kids as they battled between impulse and restraint, desire and self-control, gratification and delay. As you can imagine, some couldn't take it. They'd gobble up the marshmallow as soon as the researcher left the room. Others would try to hold out, but eventually cave in and eat it after just a few minutes because they just couldn't wait any longer. But others developed some pretty ingenious strategies for coping with the torture. Some covered their eyes so they couldn't see the marshmallow and have to stare at temptation. Others folded their arms on the table and rested their head on them to sleep. Others tried to talk to themselves in order to psych themselves up not to eat it. Others sang to distract themselves, some played with their hands and feet, while others sat on their hands to restrain them from impulsively grabbing the marshmallow, pretty much anything and everything they could do to resist from eating that marshmallow. Still others picked it up and they smelled it just to get as close as they could without eating it or actually take partaking of it. One four-year-old even licked the table all around the marshmallow just to get a taste of it as if by osmosis. The waiting just about killed these four-year-olds. And what I'd like to suggest is this. At some level, all of us have experienced the marshmallow test. 
waited and waited, anticipating the good stuff, but secretly wondering if the good stuff will ever arrive. Ironically, waiting and Christmas go hand in hand, and never was that more true than the very first Christmas. You know, this entire month, we've been focusing on the minor characters in the Christmas story, and by now, you're seeing why they're so important and how much they contribute to our understanding of Christmas. So I decided today for this devotional to share with you the story of one more minor, minor character. Jesus had just been born. So Mary and Joseph go through all the ceremonies that went along with introducing him to their community and establishing their family before God. Basically, there's some standard Jewish practices that go along with having a baby. At just eight years old, Joseph and Mary would assemble family and friends around them to circumcise the baby, marking him literally as Jewish. Then Joseph would announce his name as Jesus to everyone there. That was phase one, making Jesus a part of the Jewish community. Phase two happened 40 days after Mary gave birth. Mary and Joseph would go to the temple in Jerusalem where they would offer sacrifices for Mary and pay money to redeem Jesus as their firstborn son. This was all prescribed in the law. Mary and Joseph, they're not renegades. They're ordinary, run-of-the-mill Jewish people who love God and brought their son Jesus into their faith. In fact, they're so ordinary, and when I say ordinary, what I really mean is poor, that they offer two birds instead of a lamb because they didn't have the money to offer a lamb, and the law made exception or provision for poor people to bring a smaller gift. On that day, Joseph and Mary would have blended in with all the other Jewish men and women who were there in the temple milling around. There was nothing exceptional about them. There's no glow around the Son of God. They were just one more couple in a sea of Jewish faces right there in the temple courts. But this is when we meet a man, and his name is Simeon. Listen to how the Bible describes him. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, that's all we really know about Simeon. He's a Jew's Jew, thoroughly righteous, and completely devout. Since he's probably near death, he's always assumed to have been really old. Some accounts outside the Bible put Simeon at the age of like 112 years old, which probably stretches it a bit, but you get the idea. Simeon's an exemplary older man. But you notice what it said about him? It says that Simeon had been waiting. In fact, God had promised Simeon that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah, the consolation of Israel, with his own eyes. So Simeon waited, and he waited, and he waited. He waited for years because God had promised him another marshmallow. Now, that's simply amazing when you think about it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I seriously have trouble waiting, and it gets even worse at Christmas. I hate having to wait to open my presents. I'm always scheming, trying to figure out what I got. Ask my wife and daughters, and they'll tell you, dad's the worst. He's always asking tricky questions, trying to get one of them to break or let something slip so he can figure out what he's getting for Christmas. It's true, and how dare they describe me as the worst. But that's not Simeon. Simeon has kept his posture of waiting for many years. He hasn't become jaded and cynical with all that waiting. He hasn't become old and surly. He hasn't thrown up his hands in disgust and quit waiting for God's marshmallow. Simeon just kept waiting. 
He kept looking for the Messiah. He kept trusting that God would bring him in his time and in his way. He kept praying for God to help him hold out and wait. He kept going to the temple and scanning the crowds for this child come from God, asking God, is that him? Is that him? God, is that him over there? This is why we know anything at all about Simeon, because Simeon has taken this active stance of waiting on God to deliver that marshmallow. Simeon shows us what it means to wait well on God. You see, in the midst of our disappointments, waiting well means not getting bitter, not walking away, not demanding instant results from God. Waiting well is intentionally trusting. It's being prayerfully dependent and obedient to God. It's watching and scanning for God to bring us that marshmallow of his. So whatever it is that you're waiting on right now, how well do you wait? Will you not give up, get jaded, or become bitter because God loves you and he knows exactly what you need and will bring it in his time and in his way? Will you trust and pray and obey God until he brings resolution? This is super important because as I've heard John Ortberg say, waiting isn't just a matter of getting what we're waiting for. It's also a matter of the kind of person that we become in the process. It's so true. And oddly enough, it's exactly what the marshmallow test revealed, the sort of people those kids would become. You see, the researchers ended up tracking these kids into adolescence and early adulthood. The four-year-olds who were able to wait grew to be more socially competent, better able to cope with frustrations in life, and less likely to become rattled under pressure and stress in life. But the four-year-olds who couldn't wait, they grew up more likely to be stubborn and indecisive, to regress or become immobilized by stress, to be resentful about not getting enough and prone to jealousy and envy. How well you wait or how well you don't wait determines the kind of person you're going to become. This is super important. We've got to learn to wait well for God's marshmallow. But there's one more thing. Let's see what happens when Simeon actually lays his eyes on Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. What Luke tells us next is this. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought, brought in their child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon got what he'd been waiting for. Somehow, some way, in that mass of Jewish humanity at the temple, Simeon locks eyes on that child, and then something, or rather someone, stirs deep inside of him to say, that's him, Simeon. So Simeon dashes over to Joseph and Mary and just pulls Jesus right out of their arms as if having a stranger come and grab your baby isn't uncomfortable and disturbing enough. Simeon begins to sing a song over the child. Now remember something here. Simeon had waited for years to lay eyes on the consolation of Israel, the one who would rescue Israel, the promised one, the Messiah. But here he sings about laying eyes on Jesus, who's not just the consolation of Israel, but the light of the world for the Gentiles and the Jews. The coming of Jesus was even better than he thought he'd been waiting for. You see, his wait was more than worth it because Christmas was bigger than what he expected, bigger than he imagined, more than he ever dreamed. It's not just deliverance for the Jews. It's salvation for the world. 
Christ came at Christmas to give us a relationship of acceptance with God, forgiveness of your sin, freedom from guilt, peace with God, and a life justified before him. Now look at how Simeon rounds out his encounter with Joseph and Mary. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So right after Simeon sings that song about Jesus, Joseph and Mary are simply stunned because a complete stranger who was a Jew's Jew has come and sung a song that confirmed everything they'd been told about who their son would be. So Mary and Joseph reason, I mean, how could anybody know that if God had not shown him? They marvel at what God is doing. But then the other shoe drops. Simeon gives them some new information that they hadn't known before. Their baby boy Jesus would, would be a point of contention not universal acceptance. His rejection would cut Mary to the very quick of her soul as if a double-edged sword were plunged into her heart because she's his mother and she would be powerless to do anything about it except helplessly watch as it unfolded. Jesus would become the litmus test for the people of God. Based on how people respond to Christ, either in faith or in rejection, their true colors with God would come shining through, which still holds true today. So what do we do with our heartache at Christmas? Well, we've been waiting and experiencing God's marshmallow test. But Christ came at Christmas to relieve us in our waiting. God's promised one has come. Our hope has been fulfilled. You know, since December 1st, we've been in a kind of countdown. We call it Advent, which are the 25 days leading up to Christmas. In most traditions, we light a separate candle each day to remind us of the coming of the light of the world. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but on the very first Sunday of Advent, the first candle that's lit is referred to as the prophecy candle. This candle represents the message of the prophets of old, especially Isaiah, who foretold the birth of Christ. It represents hope, expectation, and anticipation of the coming deliverer. It's also fitting because we're lighting these candles during the darkest part of our year. I mean, literally, this past Wednesday was the winter solstice, which is the longest night of the year. The word solstice is from the Latin word solstitium, and sol means sun, and stitium means a stoppage. So we light a candle of hope, waiting for Christmas Day, waiting for the fulfillment of our hope. Now, whether you're aware of this or not, you're hardwired for hope. You don't live by instinct. Every decision you make, every choice you make, every response you have to the situation of life is fueled by and motivated by hope. Your story, the story of your life, is a story of hope. Your happiest moments are hope moments. Your saddest moments are those times when your hopes are dashed or destroyed. And you and I, we're always looking for hope. You're always attaching your hope onto something. Waiting and hoping, they just go hand in hand because hope is the attitude or the posture we have when we wait. Our problem is we tend to look for hope in all the wrong places. We look for hope where it can't be found. This is the reason so many of us are filled with disappointment, frustration, and confusion because we want certain things to give us hope, but they can't deliver on that promise. So let me ask you, when, when life is hard, when it's difficult and confusing, when you're dealing with the unexpected, when your story is not the way you would like your story to be, 
Where do you run for hope? Where do you look for comfort? Where do you run for your sense of security? Here's what I know. In your darkest moment, your true hope will be exposed. What you're really putting your hope in is going to be put to the test. It will become apparent because what you're hoping in will either hold you up or it's going to let you down. It'll either see you through or it's going to make it clear that you're through. What I'm saying is hope has to fix what's broken. Hope to be hope has to address the biggest, deepest, darkest dilemmas of our life. If hope can't fix what's broken, then why would you hope in it? The other thing to keep in mind is hope is not a situation. Hope is not a location. Hope is not an experience. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. I love the way Billy Graham said it. He, that's Jesus, is equal to every emergency, the answer to every problem in our lives. And because Jesus can do what no one else can, we can be assured that there's no problem so big he can't solve it. There's no pain so great he can't comfort it. And there's no wound so deep he can't heal it. Jesus is the light and the hope of the world. That's what Christmas is all about. Don't forget that even in your darkest moments, it's Christmas day. Our waiting is over. Our hopes and dreams of who Christ is and why he came have been fulfilled. I don't have to wait any longer for this dream to come true. Christ is here. He's answered my prayer in abundance. It's Christmas day. It's really time for the good stuff. Merry Christmas.